It's a wonderful blessing to be gathered with you guys this Good Friday evening. Um, what a um, what an ironic title for today, Good Friday. I um, I was looking at my brother's Facebook page earlier today, and I saw that there was a little comic strip that was posted. And um, on that comic strip, you have two friends that are having a conversation. And uh, guy number one says, uh, I hate the term Good Friday. Guy number two says, why? Number one says, my Lord was hanged on a tree that day. Guy number two says, well, if you were going to be hanged on a tree that day and he volunteered to take your place, then how would you feel? Guy number one says, good. Guy number two walks off and says, have a nice day then. (laughs) And uh, as much as we chuckle about it, and it's obviously a comic intended to chuckle about, Good Friday is good because Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He died in our place. Good news for sinners like us. Um, If you've been coming to UBC for a while, then you know that we have been working our way uh, through the book of Acts. Today we're going to continue that. Um, And also, actually tomorrow, or on Sunday for Easter, we're also going to be mainly focused in the book of Acts as well. But we're going to pick up right where we left off this past Sunday um, in Acts chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, you can open up there. If you don't have a Bible, um, our passage will be on the screen behind me in just a moment. But we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to work our way all the way through verse 30. And verse 30 speaks very directly about the crucifixion of Christ. And the crucifixion of Christ is obviously what we remember on Good Friday. And um, let me just also say this before we get too far. I want to remind everybody here that I am going to be speaking candidly about the graphic nature of a crucifixion tonight. And so if you have little kids in here, you really do need to be discerning about whether or not they are mature enough and ready to be able to handle uh, this type of content. If you need to step out um, with them, you can go ahead and and do that now. And just as a reminder, we do have full children's ministry uh, programming going on for the kids down in our family center. So as we get into Acts chapter 5, let's just quickly recall where we left off. Uh, As we've studied Acts, we've seen the resurrected Christ appear to his disciples. He told them to wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit would come, give them power to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit come and enable them for ministry on the day of Pentecost. Chapter 3 and 4 were all about the disciples going and doing mighty works and ministry in Jesus' name. We get to chapter 5 and the religious leaders, some of which we had known as the the Sadducees, um, didn't like this, so they arrested Peter and John and they threatened them and said, don't do this, don't preach anymore in Jesus' name. But that didn't stop Peter and John, they continued doing what they were doing, they continued to minister to the crowds, they healed the sick, they preached the gospel, and people from the surrounding areas were coming to receive the ministry of the apostles and it says that the public was holding up the apostles in high esteem that's really where we left off and i want to pick up now in chapter 5 verse 17 verse 17 says this but the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is the party of the sadducees and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison We've met the Sadducees before, haven't we? We learned about them in chapter 4. If you remember, um, they were the ones that arrested Peter and John, as well as the man who had been uh, lame from birth. Um, 
and uh, they, they really came against Peter and John's teaching. If you remember, we said that the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, yet that's what the apostles were preaching. Um, not only that, but uh, you know, when Jesus was on the earth, he was raising dead people. Um, when Jesus himself was crucified, he rose again. And now here we have the apostles preaching the resurrected Christ and many people were believing. And so, you know, the, um, not only were the, was the public believing, but the people were holding the apostles in high esteem. So you can see how these Sadducees would be jealous. They really wanted the affirmation of the people. And in their jealousy, they came here and they arrested the apostles and they threw them in prison. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the Lord miraculously opens the prison doors and the disciples are able to go out and do what the Lord told them to do, to preach life that is in Jesus. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the living water, right? So life is found in Jesus. The apostles are out back in the temple preaching just as they had done before in the temple courts, preaching about life in Jesus. Verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. So these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin is the, the big name for them, if just kind of a big group of 70 senators or so. They, um, they call this morning meeting and they're like, all right, we've got this apostle problem again. What are we going to do? Let's go get, pull them out of prison and bring them in. We're going to put them on trial. They have no idea what happened the night before. So verse 22 and 23, they find out. It says in verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside, right? So nobody killed the guards and, you know, busted the apostles out of jail. Nobody, you know, broke free the, the prison doors. The doors were still locked. The guards were still there. But one thing, you know, was not normal. The, it was not normal because... Uh, the apostles weren't inside anymore. And it says in verse 24, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this come to? And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now to me, this is quite the situation going on here because the captain is perplexed, you know, like uh, what happened to these guys? And some random guy comes in and says, they're back where they used to be. They're over there in the temple preaching again, just like they were last time. So now how is everybody going to respond? So verse 26 says that the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So you got to remember, these, these religious leaders are the same guys uh, in verse 17 who were jealous. Um, they were envious of the affirmation that the apostles were getting from the crowds they desperate, the, the, these religious leaders desperately wanted that affirmation for themselves, but the Jewish crowds were giving it to the apostles. Therefore, the religious leaders, they go and they're going to arrest them. The previous times they arrested them, they've grabbed them by force and taken them. Now they're saying, no, we better not do that because the crowds like these guys and we don't want the crowds getting mad at us. So they play nice. They bring them in for questioning. We get to verse 27 and it says, and when they had brought them, 
They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Well, yeah. Who else does Jesus' blood belong on? These are the same guys, if you remember, just months before who had plotted and schemed with Judas and others to give Jesus a mistrial and then call for his crucifixion. Jesus' blood is on them, right? So this is a, now they're saying, hey, you know, didn't we tell you to stop preaching in Jesus' name? Well, verse 29, Peter and the apostles reply, and it says in verse 29 that Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Peter says, God raised him after you killed him. His blood is on your hands because you crucified him on a tree. And that's what leads us up to Good Friday today. This is, as we, thought, as we think about Jesus being hung on a tree, there's really just two things I want to share with you today. I want to talk to you today about what a crucifixion was and why it matters that you know about it. Okay, I want to talk to you about what a crucifixion was and why it matters that you know about it. And after I share these things, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I hope that we come to the Lord's table tonight believing in Jesus and with a sober thankfulness for what he did for us at the cross. So let's talk about what a crucifixion was. Uh, In today's culture, I, I really, I think people are familiar with the imagery of Christ hanging on a cross. We see crosses everywhere. Um, But we're really not familiar with the process of crucifixion or the nature of it as a whole. I think there's a a couple reasons for that. Within the church, you know, we read the Bible all the time, but the Bible doesn't give us much detail about a crucifixion and what was all entailed there. Not only that, but so so much time has passed since crucifixions were common that it's just not something that we really are exposed to or talk about much in our culture. Here's what you need to know. The the process of crucifixion was started by the Persians around 500 BC. It was later developed and some would say even perfected by the Romans starting in around 300 BC and it carried over all the way till about 300 AD. It was a process of capital punishment that was continually used by the Roman Empire until the reign of Constantine. And in 337 AD, Constantine banned crucifixion. No longer legal. Therefore, since that time, crucifixion has just very rarely been utilized. We've had a few times in human history where other cultures have tried to reinstate a crucifixion, but for the most part, it's been rarely utilized, and therefore people in our culture are very unfamiliar with it. However, the readers of the New Testament, when they were reading about this in the first century, they would have been very familiar with the crucifixion because it was happening in and around them all the time. So it's important for us to do our best to go back and have a similar understanding as they would have. When they read about Christ's crucifixion in the first century, we need to know a little bit more about what that meant. 
The first thing we need to understand about crucifixion is that it was a form of capital punishment. It was a form of the death penalty. Much like we would talk about the electric chair or something like that, we, that's what the crucifixion was. It was a horrible means of death given to criminals and enemies of the state and traitors and conflict and convicts. It was a means of public execution. It was meant to send a message, right? We sometimes think of crucifixions as maybe happening out in some kind of uh, field or something where not many people are around, but crucifixions were set up publicly in order to send a message to people saying, hey, if you go against the laws of our land, you go against the, you disrespect the leaders of our empire, this is what's going to happen to you. When it was originated, Persians... Um, set up one vertical post called a stipe. And the way they killed somebody is that they would impale them over the top of that stipe. The Romans later added the crossbeam. It's called a patibulum. And by adding this, really what they wanted to do was they wanted to make the process of somebody dying last longer. The goal of the Roman Empire became over time to do two things. To make death as painful and as shameful as possible. As painful and as shameful as possible. It's hard for us to even imagine the pain of a Roman crucifixion. People's bodies would be affixed to a cross, whether by ropes, but most usually, most commonly by spikes, or nails. Most of the time, those nails would be pounded through the wrists or through the hands of someone's arms going across the horizontal crossbeam. Likewise, a person's feet would be either placed one on top of the other or side by side um, along the, uh, the edges of the vertical stipe beam. And likewise, nails would be pounded into their feet or through their ankles into the stipe. As you can imagine, it would be a struggle for a person to breathe, hanging there literally with their arms and their feet, just hanging, dangling from spikes. They would be left to hang there for hours or for days. And as painful as all of that even sounds to us so far, people wouldn't even die from pain. People would die eventually, most commonly they would die uh, by asphyxiation. Sometimes they would have heart failure on the cross, but more often they would die from literally drowning in their own blood as it filled up in their lungs around their heart. Here's the thing. The Romans wanted to make the process of painful death last as long as possible. So you can imagine that sometimes if a man or a woman is hanging on a cross and they wanted to die quicker, if they could allow themselves to suffocate quicker, they could die. So sometimes they would pull their feet free from the spikes that were holding them in so that they could dangle down and hang and run out of breath quicker and die. That's why the Romans put a seat on the cross so that somebody couldn't dangle down quite as far and hang that way. They would hit the seat. Eventually, the Romans were vicious enough to start sharpening some of those seats to a point. And you can imagine how uncomfortable that would be. 
a first century Roman writer named Seneca said that sometimes just to make sure a person didn't fall to the side, the left or the right of that seat and, and die quickly, it said that Seneca wrote and said that sometimes a man's genitals would even be nailed into the vertical spike. Roman crucifixions were intended to make death as painful as possible. But in in addition to the pain, there's also the shame. Crucifixions were public executions. They were done in main thoroughfares, main gathering areas, places where people, crowds would walk by, crowds could see, numerous people could look and mock and pay attention to what's going on. To be most shameful, people would most often be crucified totally naked. Their full anatomy exposed to the crowd that was passing by. They would bleed. They would cry. They would scream out in public. Sometimes they would become incontinent from the pain or from the time uh, that they would be on a cross. Their bodies, after they died, would either be left for animals or they would be thrown into garbage piles. Crucifixion was so terrible that a new word was made, for, made up for it in the Roman Empire. It's the word that we now know as excruciating. It comes from two Latin words, meaning from the cross. So when we use the word excruciating, we are making a reference to the pain of the cross. Crucifixions were intended to make death as painful and as shameful as possible for as long as possible. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified. I want us to remember the events that led up to Christ's crucifixion. The night before Jesus' death, he was sharing the Passover supper with his disciples. And during that meal, the scripture says that Satan entered Judas. Judas left the meal to go find the men that he had made a deal with in order to betray Jesus and gain money. So at one point in the meal, Judas left, and shortly thereafter, Jesus left. When Jesus left, he went to the garden to pray. Jesus knew what was coming. That's why the scripture says that when he was praying, he cried out to the Father. He said, Father, uh, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Let the suffering that I'm about to take into my body, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, he prayed, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And while Jesus was praying, it says that great Drops of blood. He was sweating because of the intensity that he was feeling in that moment. Judas arrives in the garden. He betrays Jesus with a kiss, as we read earlier. Jesus was arrested and he went through trials that night. Illegal trials. The Jews were not supposed to take trials in the evening, yet that's what they did for Jesus. The same men who are arresting the apostles in the book of Acts are the same men who arrested Jesus and gave him an illegal trial with non-credible witnesses. They had no reason to do so, yet they sentenced Jesus to be killed. After his sentencing, the scripture says that he experienced a scourging. A scourging was uh, a whipping where a person's hands... Uh, were chained together, their back, 
Their legs were exposed. They often had to lean over a stump or onto a post or against a wall, and executioners would go back and forth, whipping them with a device that was called a cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had a handle with many leather straps coming off of it. Each leather strap was typically made in the form of a braid, and some of those braids would have stones or metal balls woven in. Others had bones or pieces of clay or shards of glass or chunks of metal woven in. The bones and uh, the, the stones and the balls were meant to whip and tenderize a man's back. The metal and the glass were meant to tear the flesh. And so the braids would be whipped across a man's back and legs would literally, like a rake, just rake the flesh off of a man's back until sometimes his skin would hang like ribbons off of his back. That was a scourging. And the scripture says in the gospel accounts that Jesus was scourged. Many times people would die from the scourging alone, but for Jesus the scourging was just the beginning. After his sentencing and his scourging, he was led out to the public courtyard where the people mocked and said, there he is, the king of the Jews. The king needs a crown. So they made for him a crown with long, sharp thorns. They placed it on top of his head and then pounded it down into his skull with reeds. The king needs a robe. So they took a purple robe and laid it across his bloody back that was filled with open wounds from the scourging. Later, that same purple robe we know was going to be torn off of his back, opening up the scabs and the open wounds as these guys placed bets for his garments. They mocked him in the courtyard as the king of the Jews. The suffering for Jesus continued after this. He was asked to carry the crossbeam upon his ribboned back. It likely weighed 100 pounds or so. And he had to carry it to the place of his crucifixion, which was about a mile walk away. Jesus was so weak from the scourging that he couldn't carry his cross, so they called a man named Simon to carry it for him. When they arrived at the place of his crucifixion, the torture just continues. His beard is pulled out from his face, He continues to be mocked and punched by the onlookers. The cross beam is laid across the ground, connected to the vertical stipe beam. Jesus is told to lay down, place his arms across it. As Roman soldiers held him down, they took five to ten inch spikes and pounded them through his hands or his wrists and through his ankles or his feet. As his body begins to bleed and twitch and suffer types of pain that I don't think any of us can even imagine. But before they raise him up on the cross, they take one more nail and they write something on a sign and they nail it to the cross right above his head and it's a sign that says, King of the Jews. Look what happens, Jews, when you try to identify your own king. You rebel against Caesar. So now the cross with Jesus' bloody body affixed to it 
It's raised up and lifted up and the vertical beam is carried by Roman soldiers until it is held right over a hole in the ground and then it is dropped. And when that stipe hits the ground, every part of Jesus' suspended body is jolted and his hands and his feet tear against the nails. His ribboned back scraping against the pieces of wood. And here Jesus hangs, naked, beaten, bloody, dying. The crowds watching, mocking and cheering. And it's said that in the Roman culture, the Jewish culture, it was often some of the most disreputable members of the community that would come and they would laugh and mock, start to take bets on how long is it going to be before he screams out, how long is it going to be before this one dies, who's going to die first? So here hangs Jesus. His His full body exposed for everyone to see. mocking him blood and sweat excrement running down their bodies as lowlifes take bets on how long is this one going to live and Jesus hung there for a full six hours and they watched as he struggled for every breath having to pull his body up or push his body up with his feet They pierce his side with a spear. One pool of blood accumulating at the foot of the cross, another pool of blood accumulating around his lungs. And he cried out to the Father, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. This is the death of the Son of God. This is a crucifixion. This is just a glimpse into what it means when we read words in the Bible like, you killed him by hanging him on a tree. And here's why you need to know about it, church family. Here's why I need to know about it. It's because the more you understand the nature of Christ's death for you, the more you'll understand the extent of his love for you. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and 6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So I want you to hear this very plainly today. Jesus didn't just die for sins. He died for us. In fact, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He died in our place. It should have been us. It should have been us. You've heard this illustration before, but I don't know a better one to say it. Imagine that there's a king who says... 
When there's disobedience against my will, the penalty is going to be death. And then that king finds out that one of his own children has disobeyed his commands. Now the king, what's he going to do? Is he going to put his child to death? If he's just, he will keep his word and punish his child. If he's loving, how could he kill one of his children? And so the child goes to the executioner's table. And the king steps down off his throne and comes and lays down on the executioner's block and dies in the place of his child, thereby upholding his justice and showing his love. That is the cross. His love and his justice shown perfectly. Jesus didn't just die for sins, he died for us. He didn't just die for our sins. He died in our place. You and I deserved every bit of the crucifixion and more. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. We deserve hell, separation from God eternally. And yet Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The cross shows us how much God hates sin. And at the same time, the cross shows us how much God loves you. He loves you more than you can ever dream. The more you understand the nature of Christ's death for you, the more you'll understand the extent of his love for you. That's why we talked about the nature of a crucifixion tonight. Look at what great lengths the Son of God was willing to go to take the wrath that you deserve. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And before we do that, I want us to just remember the words of Jesus on the night before he was crucified, taking the Passover meal with his disciples. It says that Jesus took the bread and he held it up and he said, this bread, this is my body that was broken for you. So when we come and we take the bread from the table tonight and we place it in our mouth and it breaks, remember that Jesus' body was broken for you. Jesus said about the cup, he took the cup and he said, this blood is given for the forgiveness of your sin. When we take the cup tonight, symbolizing Jesus' blood, I hope you remember just how much blood he gave to save sinners. He didn't just die for sins. He died for our sins. And he didn't just die for our sins. He died in our place. So those who are going to serve the Lord's Supper can go ahead and make their way forward now. And in just a moment, everybody in this room, we're going to have ushers that are going to start in the back of the room and work their way forward. And they're going to dismiss you row by row to come take the bread and the juice to remember Christ's body and his shed blood. And I want to just remind us that this beautiful but sobering activity, ordinance, this whole process, this is... uh, This is special. 
So it's not to be taken lightly or gone through flippantly or mindlessly. This is for believers. This is somebody, this is for people who have actually come to appreciate what Jesus did for them on the cross. So parents, if you have little kids in the room, I just want to remind you, if your children have professed faith in Christ and they believe upon him, that they're, they're welcome to come to the table. If they haven't yet professed Christ as Savior, you need to have them refrain from coming to the table. This is for believers. For those of you who are adults in this room or older children or teenagers or college students, like this is, here, you have to examine our hearts. And if you know that in your own heart you haven't yet believed upon Jesus, you haven't repented for the sin that he died for, if that's you, then you have two options tonight. Option number one is you can repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can come to this table and take the Lord's Supper with a sincere heart of appreciation and thankfulness for Christ for the first time. But if you still haven't believed and you refuse to repent of your sin, we just ask respectfully that you would stay in your seat when everybody else is dismissed. This is for believers. So believers, before you come to the table, examine yourself. Those who are dismissing people row by row, once we start to sing, I want to ask you guys, before you dismiss people, give, us, give folks some time to think and pray before we start dismissing rows. We need to come to the table remembering how much God hates the sin that we often act careless about in our lives. So church family, we've got to examine our hearts. Let's make sure our hearts are right with God. None of us are perfect. If we wait until we're sinless or perfect, we're, we're never going to come to the table. But because of the blood of Jesus, we come with a sober-minded thankfulness that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all of our sin even the sin that you may be struggling with coming into this room tonight. So examine your heart. Be honest with God about your sin. If you need a time of confession and repentance before the Lord, or if you need to go to somebody else who's here tonight and relationally make things right, or if you need to step out of here and call somebody, make a phone call, try to connect with someone, please do so. But come to this table, not expecting perfection out of yourself, but remembering the Christ who gives us his perfection. The cross shows us how much God hates sin. The cross shows us how much God loves us. So we can come confidently with full assurance because by his wounds we are healed. Father, I want to thank you for the cross. It is hard to think about these things. It's hard to say them out loud. And yet, Lord, it puts within me, Lord, just a refreshed thankfulness for what you endured for a sinner like me. And I just want to say thank you. I thank you that you've blessed us with a church full of people who love you and who have been saved by you. And Lord, I pray that you would put a refreshing, um, put a, ref a refreshed zeal in our heart for holiness and to not want to play games with sin, 
sinful actions, sinful desires, sinful attitudes, sinful motives, Lord. We want to leave it all behind. I pray, Lord, that you would let us uh, live in the righteousness that Christ has granted to us. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body and for your shed blood. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you.